Hello, I'm Net88. Welcome to my podcast where I chat to geocachers to learn more about this amazing game. Today I am sitting down with Rastus Triple Zero, who is one of the first geocachers in Queensland. Thanks for sitting down with me today, Rastus. Hey, it's a pleasure to be here. Firstly, I always ask, when did you start geocaching and how many geocaches have you found? Well, I started geocaching pretty soon after selective availability was turned off. I'd already been using GPSs for other projects. And then to find that there was this game was um, an interesting discovery and, and really changed my world around knowing what was going on around me. So I started in June, I think, 2001. Um, I'm not the first geocacher in Brisbane, but I am the one who still, when I say active, I still go out and find every so often. How many have I found? Well, I've logged 1,200. And if you consider back in the day, there were 26 geocaches in Brisbane. It took a long time to get to 100. So today, you can find 100 in a day if you're really keen. Uh, I remember a project that went on, and I can't, I think it was If and someone else, um, set up a project to do 100 caches in 24 hours. They started at midnight, finished at midnight, and planned everything down to the minute. So finding 100 was a big deal back then. Yeah. Huge deal. So I, I find geocaches, sometimes I log them, sometimes I don't. But whenever I go somewhere new, hey, I'm a souvenir hunter, I want to get the new country. Um, but that's where I play around with going out and seeing what the locals say is a good thing to see. So last time in Cairns, I went and found a geocache just outside of my motel, which was a marine or a maritime uh, memorial. And I don't think I've logged it. But that's not what it's about for me anymore. Yeah, for you it's about getting out and finding them. I, I, I do enjoy watching people get those landmark figures of 1,000, 2,000 or, heaven forbid, 10,000. I, I don't have the time in my life to do that anymore. But I did go through a process there where I was trying to get a case a day. And that was a bit of a challenge and that fell away after about eight months when I missed one. Oh. But it is a thing that I enjoy doing i used to be a bit of a puzzle hound now not so much because some of the puzzles are becoming quite ridiculous but when i can go out and cache with someone um we'll have a great time and i still take people to my first geocache site which happened to be on top of constitution hill at the Ilden hill reservoir and i wouldn't have known about that had it not been for geocaching and it's now become part of my place where i show visitors so it takes me to places that I really enjoy. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You mentioned earlier about that selective availability and, and that's when you really got into geocaching. How did you hear or learn about it? I ran a dive boat for a while in the in the mid-80s and we had a guy who was very much a tech geek, not that he'd have been called that at the time, of course, but we had a GPS unit on the boat. Very, very early, very, very formative, um, I think Nixie tubes were the display, mm -hmm. so um, they're coming back into fashion now as a, as a household um, fashion item. Mm -hmm. But we had to recalibrate every day from a known point. So we knew what our point was, where the, the vessel was moored, and then we'd recalibrate and go and travel. It wasn't unusual during the day to find out you'd had to recalibrate again because the military were absolutely paranoid at the time around shifting the coordinates so that their GPS system couldn't be used against them. So that's how I got involved through that very, very early time. And then I had a, a handheld GPSR. The first one I bought was a MAP60, a Garmin MAP60. And 
we were using it to plot paths and tracks and also points of interest for uh, cartography type purposes and writing tour guides. So it was a really, really uh, good way to be able to place yourself on a map to generate the guidebooks. Um, mm. GPS was very expensive at the time, particularly GPSR, and this is pre-SA being uh, switched off. So um, as a lesson to those who may not know it, uh, GPS was being found to be used by lots and lots of people. In fact, uh, one of the major shoot-down disasters of a Korean airline prompted the uh, use of uh, GPS to be made more mainstream and Bill Clinton in fact was the, the president in place at the time when the order to switch that off occurred which made GPS far more reliable yeah. and meaning that the centre line of the road wasn't going to move 100 metres one way or 20 metres another 100 metres one way in an aircraft when you're on a landing approach is a big thing. I can imagine that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that, that's where that occurred. And that's when the first stash hunt happened. That's when the first geocache was uh, put into, I think it might have been a Usenet group, and then found. And that is the point. The geocache's um, Nirvana, <laughs> cache number one, there's a plaque there. And uh, I've never been into the US in that point in place, so I can't go and get it, but I might one day. Yeah. So I think you've got to go and get it. Yeah, it's a good goal, isn't it? <laughs> that one yeah. day. I know that the smartphone app didn't come in until about 2010, and you've said that you had a GPSR. Now, how exactly did geocaching work in 2001? Did you use that GPSR? Was there other methods? Oh, look, if, if you were keen about this, you were really keen, you could zoom in on the map, on the website, and go looking. But, of course, it was designed for a GPSR. And, really, it was a challenge because you had to expend money. The Garmin Etrex was probably the cheapest GPSR on the market at the time. Still a reliable little unit, got a punching things by hand and that sort of stuff. But it was a challenge, but it was around the technology. In fact, I've got a listing there for a, um, a virtual cache on Mount Wellington in Tasmania, where I actually put the details in about how many times I averaged the position. Because back in the day, that was important to let you know what the dilution of position was or your accuracy was, so that you could let people know generally how far or how close they needed to be. It was not unusual to go looking back in the day for a geocache that was 20, 30 metres away from the given coordinates because we were not used to this averaging deal. We, weren't, we, we got better as we went along. And when we started, uh, 29 geocaches were available in the immediate area around Brisbane, if my memory serves me correct. A number of those have been placed by university students out of QUT and they were the infamous um, Moogsy something or other and spider caches which were notoriously pieces of crap. Can I say that? They were, yeah, pieces, yeah, of, they were pieces of poo. Um, generally very, very low, low quality containers stuck somewhere. The first one of these I went to was a a 40 litre plastic container buried in the ground under a tree at the back of the Ronga pool. The mower had gone over it and <laughs> in that particular now full of water cache was a dead bird. And what has come of that is that we, we, we actually had a conversation with the lecturer at the time and appreciated what he was doing but helped him um, give some instructions to the, the students about something that would last a while. But they really were only there for six months for that semester and then they disappeared there were others that were remarkably good of course in 2001 
no such thing as a digital camera that you could leave in a cache. But there were these film cameras. And I recall climbing down the side of Mount Kutha opposite the Channel 9, yeah, the Channel 9 TV studios. And I think, I can't even recall the name of the, the cache, but it was tucked in there behind a big red gum under a pile of rocks. And in there was a camera to take a photo of yourself so that the cache owner could come by and process the film, scan the images and put up on the, on the, on the find. And that was really, really remarkable. And, and a friend of mine, Darren Webster's are we. We climbed down that, we did what we did, and that, that got the bug happening, it really did. So my first geocache at Ildon Hill was a metal tin with a plastic lid, a formula container or something, mm-hmm. tucked in behind the pump house. And as we went round the back of the pump house and found this and we looked around, we saw a myriad of magazines of a particular type that probably would have suited teenage boys. Oh, yeah. And this was their little area for themselves. And it wasn't an appropriate place. So we're getting better at placement as well. Uh, we also found a, a heap of syringes at that site. So a, a couple of us that I knew were geocaching at the time, we went and cleaned it up. Yeah. Um, so that was probably our first CETO. Yeah, yeah I was going to say you were CETOing <laughs> before it was a thing. Well, I, I, I looked at it very much as safety. I look at CETO as a bonus. But I think the message that I've taken away from geocaching has been one of place a cache where it's going to be of interest to someone or is going to take someone to a place that they wouldn't normally go to. And invariably, this is what geocaching has done for me. I cache more when I travel. It takes me to places. I did a geocache at the three ways in the Northern Territory. The John Flynn Memorial is just there on the north side of three ways and I did the geocache. Well, a year and a half or maybe two and a half years later, I get a, an email from my parents going, we know where you've been. And there's a photo of the log and the date and the time with my, my note of Rastus triple zero. Because the people they travel with are absolute nuts about their geocaching. On that particular trip across to Broome, we pulled into an old airstrip. And that old airstrip had a large boiler there for a wood mill where during the war that's where they would process timber to make lumber or timber to create the buildings at the airstrips on that particular road. What a great place for a geocache. I wonder, and I reached my hand into the boiler, lo and behold, pulled out <laughs> a geocache. Wow. And the gentleman we were travelling with, uh, he looked at me and just said, really? Because he doesn't get geocaching. Um, I was on a search up at the top of uh, Mount Nebo. I pulled out the GPSR and is there a cache near here? And lo and behold, there's one right where I'm standing. Hang on, John. Wandered downstairs underneath, hand up there. There it is. Came out. Really? <laughs> so places of interest and places to go and sometimes a bit of a challenge to get there. I don't mind that. I'm not a bushwalker anymore, as evidenced by my fine physical physique. But I do like that I can rely on my colleague geocaches around the world to take me to places of interest. A lovely sentiment. Mm. Well, I, I've always tried to do that when I place a cache. Yeah. Um, and I've always felt that in most cases, anyone that's been around geocaching for a while thinks about their placement. Unless, of course, it's a power trail just for numbers. So we've heard a lot about the way that you used to find geocaches, but what is the biggest difference you have seen in geocaching since you began in 2001? I've actually had to think think about this question a bit because I haven't seen much of a change in the sport 
what I've seen is a change in the cashiers. And that is from people that had a real technical interest in GPS because it was expensive to be in, to now making it so mainstream that I bump into people. I watch them doing the, the ground zero dance, you know, oh, turn in a circle, walk this way a bit, walk back. And you know what they're up to as you're driving past. It's great to see. I think it's the accessibility through smartphones has made it something far more accessible and in turn, more people know about it. More people, when you say you do geocaching, you don't get that weird look 99 times out of 100. Yeah. You might only get it 90 times out of 100, but people get it. And with that influx of people came a change. And that change was the manner in which ground speak started. And I'll use the term policing. It's probably more appropriate to say managing. Mm. The way in which they were managing the, the, the playing field. And I think taking virtuals out of the mix was one of the one of the biggest missteps that ground speak ever made. Nice to see them coming back a bit. Uh, nice to see them coming back um, as earth caches as well. But I've got a, a virtual on top of Mount Wellington where you could never place a box and have it survive. But it gets visits from everyone who's a geocacher into Mount Wellington and it's really valuable for getting people up the mountain because they wouldn't go normally. No. So I think the accessibility and I think the changing of the rules and it's that changing of the rules that's actually annoyed me most about geocaching. But I think it's a necessary evil. Sadly, one of my long-standing caches on Bribey Island with a reviewer who wasn't the local reviewer for this area, crunched it. And I was really disappointed about that because it had a lot of history and um, disappointed with the inflexibility of some of the, the people who are volunteering their time to do it. So I'm not by any stretch of the imagination uh, whinging about the volunteer reviewers at all, but I think it's time for Groundspeak to better vet those volunteers. They've got a far greater world to go, a world of people to go to and make sure that they're around the longevity of the game rather than the black and white rules. Yeah. As a side note, I recently found that geocache on Bribery Island and very much enjoyed being taken to that spot, so thank you for that. <laughs> um, that was part of a, a Defender series. Um, the Defender at uh, Pinkin Bar uh, is now owned by someone else. I handed it off, and um, I'm appreciative of that because I can't get there that often to maintain it. But that little site has such an amazing amount of history, including the bones and the keel of a vessel in the water there, which I had no idea about until I went there, looked at it and said, what is this? And did a little bit of research. It is history. Can you imagine being posted to Bribe Island of that cache? Can you imagine being there with mosquitoes the size of B-17 bombers, um, living up there in the dunes and having to put up the privations of it? Well, that was just a bit of an image. What I really find interesting is the evidence of how those particular gun turrets were working, one of which is now falling into the water, sadly. Uh, the erosion is just amazing up there, but I have maps up there. I used to lead tours up into that area and show people where the buildings were and dispel the myth of the, sunk, the buried hospital or the underground hospital. But it takes people to a place in history. And on the wall was the Judy roster. And up until only 10 years ago, some of the chalk was still visible of the yeah. names. And as you go and do your research, you see that that must have been at that time, pretty obvious it's going to be the last years of the war, but that time that was that mob that were deployed there, here are their names and that sort of thing. So um, sadly all of the copper that used to live around the outside of the magazine to stop sparks is gone, it had been um, yeah. um, swiped for uh, salvage we'll call it, mm -hmm. but the evidence is still there and 
it's just a remarkable time and place to be, and it takes a bit of effort to get there. It definitely does, yeah. Yeah, and uh, back in the day, there were plant man caches down the, the beach, and of course, as as we all do, those who've been around a while, if you haven't got a spare container and spare bits and pieces to help maintain a cache that is remote and not visited often, I wouldn't do it for something in the city and, and potentially offend a, a cache owner, but yeah. someone went up there and replaced my box up at Defender Bribey. The old ammo tin, ammo tin, get that? Wasn't the right place to put that on a salty beach, was it? <laughs> Funny that, yeah. <laughs> Um, but certainly to replace that with a plastic ammo tin would be more appropriate these days. So it is just one of those things that um, the, the changes are about the people, the changes are about the rules, and I think for the right reason, but the execution was flawed. And the more people I can get involved in getting out there and finding stuff. There was a time there wasn't an unfound smiley within a kilometre of my house. I looked at it this morning and there's 25 for me to get. I might do that. Yeah. Well, I've just moved into the same area as you, so they're probably on my list as well. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I lament a lot of the caches that are gone now. Mm. This is not a permanent game. This is a game that is ever-changing and ever-moving. And in that simple aspect, it means you've got to get in there and get them. Over across the road from where I live, the, the creek was fairly bare, and there was this big white rock, white-painted rock peace sign. Now, there was a geocache there celebrating that, but it's gone now. It's been washed away or it's covered up by bush. Or mm-hmm. So the transient nature of some of these things is just as much fun as having a virtual on top of Mount Wellington, which is mm-hmm. never going to move. What keeps you geocaching 19 years later? Is it this taking people to places they haven't been? What keeps me going is the fact that I've been doing it for a long time. When I'm travelling, and I travel a bit for work, and I've got a couple of hours up my sleeve and I might need to have a couple of K walk before I go and have dinner, I'll go looking for a geocache. And if it's got a favourite point or more, I'm going to go there. And I like favourite points because it gives me the more caches of better quality. But I just keep going because I enjoy being taken. I trust my geocaching colleagues to take me to places that are not often viewed or that I'm going to learn something about. Almost every cache that I've placed has something to do with history. There was a series of uh, caches that were um, around the puzzles and they were decryption puzzles, specifically around the ciphers of World War II. And I called them Chaffinch, Red, Shark, all based on the ciphers that were nicknamed out of Bletchley Park or Station X. My father was a signalman in the army. So part of one of the geocaches was a house at Ascot, which was the first major venue for cooperation between the Australian Signals Directorate and also the Americans, and actually had computers in the back shed back in the 40s. Um, So that history is wonderful. Sadly, we can't get into the house. It's privately owned, but it becomes a start point or it became a start point for that cache. And, of course, when the boxes get moved or something happens and you can't get to it to service it, well, they go by the wayside, the transient nature of geocaching. Yes. We've spoken about quite a few geocaches, but is there one in particular that sticks out in your mind as one of your favourites? I think favourite is a really uh, tough thing to say. I have two that stick in my mind because of place and time more than anything. There was one at an old ferry landing terminal at St Lucia, which was hidden inside a water valve turn-off tab. Big cast iron piece that went in the ground, big bell. Someone had taken the effort, probably in darkness, to place that, dare I say bury it, to bury that, and it looked like a piece of environment, a piece that belonged there. And I went back there a few times, and then I finally looked at it and thought, that's slightly out of place. The water main would go down there. 
there it is, open it up, and there it is. So a little bit of a a thing. And then you go to do a a geocache, and this one was in the Onkaparinga area of South Australia. I was down there killing a bit of time. My dad was having some bypass surgery down there. Got up early in the morning and went for a drive. Oh, here's one. I'll go and have a look for it. Got out, walked up the fence line. I'm walking up the fence line. I looked down, walk over this water tap. As you'd see it outside, a water meter box. Yeah. And I look at that and go, water meter box in the middle of the country? This isn't right. Then I open the lid and there's a handle. So I lift out this this cache. The cache was five feet long. What? Five feet long. Big length of tube. So the effort that that went for someone who clearly bought a tractor in, yeah. bored the hole, placed the top cover on, allowed this to drop down in there, was immense. And it just flabbergasted me that someone would go to this effort in the middle of nowhere and place that cache. And for that reason, the, the inventiveness was there. So, But there was a series of caches back in the day where I absolutely... I'm not mentioning the caches name, but the, the caches were hard, harder and hardest. One involved a rock field. One involved um, an area of chipped mulch, which I actually went over with a... I went back. I, I put 25 hours into finding that cache. Oh, okay. yeah. I went back. I gridded the area off. I, I was on my hands and knees. I used SES training on this sort of thing. Yeah. Um, I bought a metal detector out and still couldn't find it. I have to say that when I'd finished, the place looked like the scrub turkeys had been <laughs> over it. But that series... Why would I spend 25 hours doing that? And that was the case where I met uh, Wing App. Oh, yeah. And that's what's important. So that series was wonderful. And the Mexican over at uh, in Western uh, West Brisbane, um, yeah. no spoilers, but to know that the case owner was sitting on his deck watching us yep. was... <laughs> <laughs> I found that one too, yep. <laughs> so I don't know that I can say that there's a one that I like, but the ones that gave me a challenge that I thought inventively done. And anything by Dwan, um, Kate & Co, or Bruce um, Wingap, they are always inventive. So how do you pick a favourite out of all of those? I think that I admire their inventiveness, and particularly Kate & Co. How does he come up with these ideas? There's a degree of brilliance, evil brilliance in that person. Yes. <laughs> so I'm, I'm sorry I can't answer your question about my absolute favourite, but my, my recent favourite is a webcam cache in Kuala Lumpur. Why? I've only ever done two, including that one, yeah. and it still exists. But next week or next month, there might be a new favourite. Yeah. Favourites can change. It's... <laughs> Thanks so much for chatting, Rastas. I just I end every podcast by asking if you have any advice for geocaches who are just starting out. My my simple advice is and I, I I would be imagining that a lot of your contributors will say this because we've gone and looked at some pretty ugly caches in the and so I'm from newbies. I don't like the term newbie, but I'm gonna use it because we all know what it means. I think before you hide a cache, spend the time, do fifty 60, 100 caches, work out what's there, work out what you like, make it yours before you hide one. And two, DNFs aren't a bad thing because it lets other people know what is going on there, in particular the owner. Nothing worse than no one logging a DNF and all of a sudden someone says, I can't find it, you go there and find it's migrated 20 feet. Mm. I think DNFs are a good thing. So that would be my advice. Don't hide until you know what it is you like. And two, log your DNFs. You might go there, give it a go, and then come back and give it another go and then log it, but still log them. It tells a story about the cache and the difficulty. Good advice. Thanks so much for sitting down with me. It's been a complete pleasure. As it has been for me. Thank you so much. And uh, 
If I might just add one thing, I've met some wonderful people with geocaching. Some of them have become my, my fi finest friends and it all came out of using million dollar satellites to find Tupperware in a bush. Who would have thunk it? Who would have thought? <laughs> <laughs>